Good morning, saints of HBC. You can turn to Daniel chapter 2. And as we just got to finish singing, our God is sovereign over us, that is the wonderful theme that we'll continue to come back to in this uh, time we spend in the book of Daniel over the next few weeks and months, is that our God in heaven does reign, and he is working for our good and for his glory, and his plans are for us to prosper, and he's not forgotten us. And these would all be the themes of Daniel's heart as he would be looking back and recounting his own life uh, when he wrote this, being in exile for uh, those 70 years that God had promised would happen, even whenever he never made it out, he never made it back to Jerusalem, but he could be thankful and he could still trust God through it all. And um, that's what's wonderful about studying this book. We get um, a twofold horizon. We get what's on the, the far horizon in the big picture of this book of the God who reigns that Yahweh, the God of Israel, has absolute sovereignty over all of history. There is an unparalleled greatness of the God of the Bible over all of the earth. No matter the circumstances, he reigns. And yet, we talked about last week, we get a more immediate horizon, which is the life of Daniel in the midst of this, that really what you're reading as you go through this book is his own autobiography, that which he saw and did and thought and felt and interacted with real kings and, and, and real other servants and people of his time. And in his life, we then get an example to follow of courageous conviction in a time of crisis. And I know I could follow that up with kind of the standard, and don't we really need that for today? Courageous convictions in times of crisis. But I think um, if we probably went back and polled anyone at any time in history, that would still be how the Christian lives. The true follower of God is, is we await that heavenly kingdom in, in his reign and his return I don't know if there would be anybody that would say, you know what, I lived for 80 years on this earth and, um, you know, we just really were cruise control the whole time. We really didn't need courageous convictions in times of crisis. You know, the 700s were just a marvelous time to be alive. And I don't even know anything about the 700s. But I think that's the beauty of this book and God's word as a whole. It's, it's transcendent, is that the principles we find here, the timeless truths that encourage our hearts have been doing that for all generations. And they do that even today as we look to Daniel. Well, last week we set the plot in motion as we started out that all of the southern kingdom of Judah that was left was taken captive to Babylon, exiled 900 miles from home, singing the lament of Psalm 137 as we sat on Babylon shores and we wept and we were mocked. How could we possibly not be in our own land and now in this foreign land with foreign gods. And that's where everything began. And yet we saw that though the earthly hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, chapter 1, verse 1, there was a stronger hand, and it was the hand of God, in verse 2, that gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And that theme of God gave is what caused us to say from the start of this book to the finish, the God of heaven reigns. It's his giving that allows anything to transpire down here. And so it was his giving over of Judah after centuries of warning by the prophets to change their ways. Now they're in a foreign land. It was God giving uh, Daniel favor and compassion 
in the sight of uh, the chief of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's staff in verse 9 in chapter 1. And that it was God that gave learning and skill to Daniel and his friends. And it's important to pay attention to chapter 1 and even revisit it from time to time in these months. Because really, as Daniel again, he is compiling his life's story decades later on the back end to, to to show you how the seeds of God's reign planted in chapter 1 will come back and be revisited when you pay attention, uh, we'll say, to the Easter eggs that he plants. So when you see in verse 17, for instance, from last week, that God gave the four youths learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, but he particularly highlights, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. That's not a throwaway line, friends. Because what you're going to see today is Daniel's particular skill and ability given by God to know visions and dreams comes right back around, not just to bless Daniel and his friends, but many others as well. And there are other parts of chapter one that you will see come back around. Daniel's resolve to be a man of conviction in verse 8. Well, you're going to see that on display today. And you'll see it on display in two chapters from now. All of these seeds are planted in chapter 1 as Daniel wants to unfold a story of God's faithfulness to his people and his reign overall, as well as Daniel's response in faith. This chapter, chapter 2, that we'll cover today, he has another test. Another test of his character, another test of his convictions. And we'll see how God provides for him in that. So uh, let's pick up and see where God takes him next. Because that's the adventure of this study. Is to say, okay, God has his hand on Daniel's life. And on the life of his friends. Where would he lead him? Would it be in, into things outside of his control? Absolutely. That's how God always works. But would Daniel trust God? in the midst of these chaotic times. Uh, I'm gonna set the uh, story up by just reading the first five verses, and then we'll uh, just walk through the passage from there. So follow along as I read uh, Daniel chapter two, verses one through five. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. This is the word of God. May he bless the preaching and hearing of it this morning. Well, there's the start of a pretty big problem if you're in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. Now, I know last week I said, you know, when you look at the life of Daniel and his friends in those three years of prosperity from the time they were brought there. And I had some line like, you know, Babylon can be kind, which is what makes it seductive. Well, Babylon can also be brutal. And that's how this story sets itself up. 
Chapter 2, verse 1, the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and he has a dream. Now, quick side note on chronology, because there are moments I like to um, buttress your trust in your Bible in front of you, and if you pay close attention, uh, you're looking at that going, wait, you know, Adam, you said last week at the end of the three years, Daniel and friends meet the king, but now it's saying in the second year of the reign of the king, Daniel's meeting him. So which is it? Is is there a um, contradiction in the Bible in front of me? Are we going back in time? What is it? Well, here's the way this all adds up. Um, Daniel is going to be writing from the perspective of somebody in Babylon, and they follow the ways of Babylon and even the calendars and how kings and queens, monarchs, if you will, come into power. And the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar is, in reality, his third year. Because if you count the year of accession, when a king comes into office, the last king passes on, passes it to the next guy. It would wait until the turn of the next year for the coronation to occur. So in modern times, uh, the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, she's given credit for a 70-year reign because she did ascend to the office at the passing of the king, but it actually wasn't until 18 months later she was crowned, the coronation ceremony they waited for. So You know, which is it? Did she reign a full 70 years or 69? Depends on if you count the year of accession. So if you count the year of accession for Nebuchadnezzar, he's actually in his third year, even though Daniel's recording it by the way they would, his second real year, which would be the third year Daniel and friends are now in Babylon. Everybody good with that? If you're not, email Curtis and he can figure it out for you. But uh, we're going to move on. I I share those to say we can trust our Bibles. Just do a little bit of work. All right, here's the real issue. He's having dreams, verse one. His spirit is troubled and his sleep is leaving him, which is leaving him uh, in no small amount of irritability when you can't sleep. And you're also the king of Babylon, which at the time is the mightiest power in all of Mesopotamia, in the ancient Near East. He is the top dog. And as the saying goes, it can be lonely at the top. And who do you trust a few years in? You know, his his daddy's gone. It's really his kingdom. And it's doing well. But that might just be the issue. You, You start to hold it pretty tightly. And so easily you can become suspicious of who's actually on your side and who's for you and who's not. And then out of nowhere, you start having some crazy dreams and you have no explanation for them. I'm sure you can relate. Not the part of being the king of a modern kingdom and all the power in the world, but you get a dream, maybe even it's recurring from time to time, and you really start to wonder, is God trying to send me a message? Even this week, and now I'm sure it'll happen to you that we've talked about this, I'm studying this, And I have a dream one night about termites in a lane from Seinfeld. And I don't know what those have to do with each other. Nothing, actually. But you think about them more because you're thinking about your dreams and you're going, does that have anything like, should I call the, you know, Terminex guy? You know, should I start watching Seinfeld for more of a sign? I don't know. But, you know, the recurring ones are the really ones that, you know, I keep dreaming about showing up to this pulpit and not having my notes. You know, that's the one that maybe messes with you a little bit more. Or, you know, I still dream about my illustrious football career. 
You know, and if I went over to Shannon one day and said, you know, it's been a month, Shan. Um, you know, Tom Brady's 45, I'm 42. I still have a year of eligibility left. Maybe God wants me to make a comeback. LR's quarterback just got hurt. I don't know if that's fact. But you could really make something out of nothing. So is he making something out of nothing is the question. It clearly is bothering him that he then, verse 2 says, bring in all the bench, everybody, empty it. I need the whole king's court, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, is uh, that would be the uh, best of his best wise men, the Chaldeans. And they would, you know, be the PhDs in astrology and such at the time, actually the ones teaching Daniel and his friends, all that they learned for the last three years. So he, he brings them all in, summons them to tell the king his dreams, and they come and they stood before him. And this is actually quite the norm. You can study ancient Near East, uh, Babylonian history, uh, Assyriology, the experts in it that study it. Uh, this was normal. Dreams were a big thing. This is how you communicated with the divines. And here's kind of the, the background of this. Uh, just like you could go into a lawyer's office today, and what do you see on the bookshelves? Case law, precedent, pull it off, flip it. Oh, you know, in 1922, this verdict was given. And then in 1946, and you go back and say, with this set of information, here's probably what's going to happen today. So likely these guys were the experts in all of that, mixed in with a little sorcery and magic. But they would, under normal circumstances, be quite confident to come in, hear what the king had to say, and then, you know, go amongst themselves and say, oh, we've seen that case before. Because they actually, we have cuneiforms from that era that record these things of a dream. And then weeks or months after a subsequent related event that would give these guys pseudoscientific facts to go to their king with and say, oh, you dreamed about that. This is probably what's going to happen. There you got the background of verses 1 and 2. Verse 3. So the king says to those guys, I had a dream. My spirit is troubled to know the dream. And here comes the standard response from the Chaldeans saying to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. I mean, that's where the first hint for the king is like, really, guys, I haven't slept in a week. And you're going to give me the O king, live forever line. Let's get down to business here. Uh, tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. By the way, one more side note on the trustworthiness of your scriptures. So interesting little fact, verse 4. Why does it matter that they said to the king in Aramaic? Well, if you had an original uh, Old Testament manuscript in front of you at this point, it would be in Hebrew up to this line. Then in verse 4, Daniel starts writing in Aramaic, which was the common language used in that day, and he keeps writing in Aramaic, not in Hebrew, all the way through the end of chapter 7. Then from chapters 8 to 12, he goes back to the Hebrew language. Why does he do it? Because chapters 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 7, have a particular focus that he wants to bring to not just Israel, but to people all around the world at that time, which is... God reigns over all. Daniel chapters 2 to 7 is an apologetic witness that God just doesn't reign over these people of Israel in exile. He reigns over all kings of all time. And that's why Daniel arranges the material to show the rise and fall of these kings in those six chapters. It's quite fantastic as an apologetic even for our scriptures. Of there, there is a literary intentionality with the writers of your Bible. 
And sometimes it's even an apologetic witness to the world. So that's where you see in your, in your scripture where it says, the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, they did speak in Aramaic, that was the common language of the time. Uh, just like in your New Testament, Koine Greek was the common language of Jesus' time to write, whereas Aramaic was spoken. Back to the text. They come in, you know, they, they oh king, you're the best. Um, here's the deal, you tell us the dream, we go to the books, we give you the interpretation. King says, nah, not this time. The word for me is firm, ESV writes, which is him saying, no, here's what it's going to be, guys. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you don't make known to me the dream, as in the contents and its meaning, you will be torn limb from limb and houses laid in ruins. That's where Babylon can be cruel. But here's where Babylon can be kind, verse 9. If you show me the dream and its interpretation, verse 6, if you show me the dream and its interpretation, I'll bless you. You'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So let's go on with the show, guys. What's my dream and what's the interpretation? Well, what do we see here in the uh, character study of King Nebuchadnezzar? Like a lot of um, maniacal masters or... Uh, uh, dualistic despots, you have an unstable man, James 1.8, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, where on one hand he could say, I will tear you limb from limb if you don't give me this. But hey, you know, high stakes poker here. If you get it right, you can have it all. What would you do if you were in their shoes? Well, this is what they did. Verse 7, they answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we'll give you the interpretation. Notice, they didn't have anything else to say. They even left out the, O oh, king, live forever. Because they realize they're not on equal ground right now with him. They're going to just, I mean, my guess would be they repeated themselves word for word because they had nothing else to say. There was no kissing up. They were not in his good favor. And they knew their gig was up because they've never had to know the dream and its interpretation because he has simply asked them or given them an impossible task. Well, what's the king's response? Verse 8, aha, gotcha. Now I know for sure that you're trying to gain time. See, there's that, that um, irritability that's also underlying insecurity in a guy like this. I mean, he has all the power in the world, but yet he can't control his own thoughts and he can't control his own passions. And he's now suspicious of the guys that he has trusted all the way to the top. And now he's saying, you guys are turning on me. I know with certainty, absolute language, right? He absolutely knows they're not for him anymore when he has no idea of that. I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that I'm being firm in my word. If you don't make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. And then he accuses them of this. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. So, I mean, he does know that, hey, anytime you start with, okay, I'll give you this information, well, they could tell him whatever they want. He doesn't know if that's the right interpretation or not, but he's given them a piece of information now they can use. So by holding it back, he's really testing, do you guys know, has it anything been revealed to you about the future that you can actually help me out? So he accuses them of lying, and then he says, 
You've agreed to speak lying corrupt words before me till the times change. What that phrase probably means is you're just buying time till I'm out of here. You just want to tell me what I want to hear. And then when I'm gone, you'll be fanboys of the new king. Which they're probably in their head saying, you're absolutely right. Like, what else do you guys pay us to be here for? I mean, we read animal livers for a living. You know, we're sorcerers. Where else are we going to get employed? So, of course, they're working for whoever's in charge. You've agreed to speak this lies to me. Therefore, again, he speaks the same. Tell me the dream and show, and I'll show, or I'll know that you can show me its interpretation. And now we come to the crux of the issue, a theological question. Who actually knows the future? And it comes from the mouth of pagan Chaldean sorcerers. They answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. Absolutely true. He's given them an impossible task. For no great or powerful king has ever asked a thing of anybody. Magician, enchanter, Chaldean. Verse 11, the thing that the king asks is difficult. And here's the theology. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. If we don't have a direct line to those who see everything from above, if the gods are really above us, how are we supposed to tell you the things that we don't know? You've put us in this predicament. And there is a partly accurate theology here. Nobody down here has omniscience. And honestly, it's the same bluff that you could probably call on any palm reader or you know, tarot card person today. What are they, you know, not that I've ever visited one, but when you, you know, watch a clip or something, they're always kind of fishing for something or giving you like a vague start. I sense you've been under pressure. And they, they need you to give something to then take that next step. They're, they're, you have family. Wow. Great. Here's a hundred bucks. You know, I, I thought about it. If I ever got into that business, my opening line... 50 bucks an hour, is if I can tell you one true thing about our time together, uh, you can't ask for your money back. And they, yeah, of course. Okay, you're going to be $50 poorer at the end of this hour. Thanks for your money. And then after that, anything goes. I'm not going to go into that line of work, by the way. So this is the conundrum that these Chaldeans are in. They don't have access to information that's beyond their pay grade. And Nebuchadnezzar is going insane. He's the most powerful man on planet earth and yet cannot know what's going on in his own head. So what does he do in verses 12 and 13? Because of this, the king was very angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men be destroyed. His insecurity and his irritability adds up to irrationality. Can you relate? I mean, this is common to man. Insecurity in life, and you get bugged by the people around you, leads you to say or do irrational things. You're a little overblown at times in your estimation of what you think is going on around you. I know even as a Christian, I know my identity in Christ, but when I lose sight of that identity, I lose sight of reality, really, and the people around me suffer. Now imagine being a king and the mounted pressure there. 
I mean, how much more so if you're Nebuchadnezzar? Are you going to be on edge? And you have the power to do whatever you want except get help. Nebuchadnezzar clearly believes in dreams and their importance enough to know that they mean something. The question that bugs him is what? And I think this is where Ecclesiastes 3.11 shows the, the common grace that God gives to all, which is God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning even to the end. Why does even the skeptic or the atheist, hard-hearted, antagonistic still something gnaws at them to make their case known of their unbelief? Because the scripture says God's put that, there's something bigger out there. There's a question looming. There's something I don't know. Is there an answer out there? He's put that eternal drive into man's heart. And yet, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, man can't find out what God has done from beginning to the end. Like Nebuchadnezzar in this moment, he can't make it all add up. And this, this is the theme of this chapter. Is there a God who reveals And I say that because 30 times in these 49 verses, there's some type of word associated with, uh, can someone reveal? Does someone know? Can someone show? That's what this, you can't miss in this chapter. This chapter ultimately isn't going to be about who are the four kingdoms that we're going to get to towards the end and when those things have occurred in history. The big theme of this chapter is there is a God in heaven who reveals, but at this point in the story, nobody knows who that God is. Verse 13, so the decree goes out and the wise men were about to be killed. And here's where Daniel and his friends come into the story. This is the crisis moment. Uh, They even were seeking Daniel and his companions to kill them. So these guys have just graduated from the apprentice school. They're probably not in the uh, court of the king at this moment because it doesn't mention them anywhere in that process. But just because guilt by association, hey, if the top dogs can't help me, then all the apprentices surely can't. So let's wipe them all out. And that's what the king says. His word is firm. He has a head full of dreams, but a heart that's empty of the truth. Now, before we move on, I just was dwelling on this this week. It kind of caught my attention. And, and this is the, the amazing part about the God that we trust and believe. I mean, when we think, if, we, if I was writing this story, you know, read your Bible that way sometimes, just for your own heart to get a dose of humility. If I was writing this story, is this how I would write it? I mean, here you have this crazy king, just back and forth, double-minded, unstable in his ways. And yet... God is going to reveal, through this guy's dreams, the course of human history. He's going to take Nebuchadnezzar and use this pagan guy's dreams so that we here, 2,500 years later, understand something about the rise and fall of all kingdoms. Because I'm sitting there going, I would, no, Daniel should be the guy that has the dream. And his friends, he should call in, and they should have a prayer, individual fast, 24 hours of powerful prayer. Like, that's how Christians write movies. 
probably why they don't sell. Because it doesn't reflect how it really went down in real time. Like, let's move this into 2022. Headline, Vladimir Putin has a dream and he's willing to pay for some Christian to come interpret it. Would you sign up for that? Would you say, yeah, I got it. I'm right there. I'm going to trust that guy. He's a good dude. And, and you know what? And even if I can, you know, survive getting there or whatever, um, I believe he's going to pay out on the reward. And if, even if the interpretation is right, like whatever he dreamed, we'll take that to the bank. No, we'd be like, there's no way that guy has anything to offer from what he just dreamed. Now we flip the script the way we write it. John Piper has a dream. And we'd all be like, of course, that's, that's fact. Piper has a vision for the future of the church. Put it down, trust it. We wouldn't write it like this. Because God's ways are higher than our ways. Amen. And it's just the way he works. Not to mention, if again, put yourself in the sandals of a person reading this in exile in 530 BC. You've lost everything. And you're offended by Babylon and its oppressive culture and putting you in exile and killing your people. And now you're supposed to be excited for this storyline. This was a sign of God's judgment. And now the baddest guy in that kingdom gets to be the one who has the dream to reveal the future of the kingdoms of the world. This was a reminder from God to his people. I don't need to use you. I'll even use Nebuchadnezzar. For a massive truth to be revealed, the worst guy you can imagine on planet Earth. God's severe faithfulness on display even here. Cutting against the grain of what we would think is the wise way for him to reveal himself. If Israel's kings are failures, is this, would this God speak to a guy like Nebuchadnezzar? But the apologetic to the reader has to see that whatever Israel would have held tight to, i.e., they're the chosen people in the chosen land, promised and blessed by God, that it matters more to be God's man than to be in his land. It matters more to be Daniel in exile than the people back in Israel still holding on to hope that we haven't given up our property. No, be God's man, be God's woman. Put the other stuff aside is what this preaches. To show who really reigns in the present is to then see whose God can reveal the future. Is it going to be the God of Israel or is it going to be another God? So let's see, starting in verse 14. That's the setup. Well, in comes Daniel with the reply and right away we have something to learn from. I dare say, admire. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. Verse 14, Arioch would have been the chief henchman for the chief hatchet man for the king. And he is executing his order for all of these wise men, including Daniel and friends, to be killed. So Daniel, in a moment of crisis, out of courageous convictions, speaks up. But for us to learn from, how does he speak up? With prudence 
indiscretion, two words that maybe have gone out of fashion today. Prudence meaning skilled advice. It's the content of what you say. Matched with discretion, another way to say careful expression. So it's how you say it. And you put that together. What Daniel said and how Daniel said it is the combination of wisdom. Don't trust me. Trust Proverbs 8.12. I, wisdom, personification of it, dwell with, catch this, prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. So what, what is the scripture teaching us here about Daniel He was wise beyond his years, though a young man in a foreign land had to learn the three years of Chaldean curriculum, but yet he was wise in what he said and how he said it because the two go together. You can have a lot of true things to tell people, but if you don't know how to say them in a way for that person to hear them, what good is what truth you had to say? On the flip side, you may be very, very persuasive with your words in the best of ways. I'm not talking some kind of huckster. I'm just saying you may be very uh, skilled in speech, but if it's not built on the truths from the word of God, what does that matter? Daniel is a picture of both here. Prudence and discretion. And right in the face of the reality of his own demise. I mean, there's no guarantee he goes to speak to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, and he just says no. Oh, you want to come talk to me? You're the first one to die. Let's go. I mean, in a moment of crisis, when it could have cost him his life, true courage steps up because of his conviction. He, he trusted God. He, he felt he could do something in this situation. So he declares to Arioch, the king's captain, verse 15, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And apparently that was, the question was good enough for Arioch to say, you know what? Glad you asked. I was just here sharpening my blade. But, you know, now that you want to know about the whole urgency of this. But joking aside, there's something to be said about Daniel in his prudence and discretion asking a question about the urgency of King Nebuchadnezzar's response, not the legitimacy of it. He was able to differentiate between the issue and the process and start with the process because tends to be in life when you disagree with somebody or are trying to question why they do what they do, if you just attack the idea right away and go right at the issue, you can offend. So he asks a question about the process. Innocently enough, hey, this command of the king doesn't say beans about it. He, uh, he's the king. He can make the decrees. Submission, right? He's, he's showing humble submission. That's his decree. I'm just wondering why it's so urgent. Which was enough, again, for Arioch to step back and say, well, let me explain to you. And then in that explanation, Daniel gets a hearing with the king. And notice what he does in verse 16. Again, prudence and discretion on display. He goes in and requests the king, doesn't demand. He requests if he could come back at a later time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Why is that so wise? He kind of um, gave the king just enough uh, prick of curiosity to say, oh, you know, he could have wiped him out right there. Didn't the king say, my word is firm? It's over for these guys. But yet Daniel's approach to it wasn't to just burst in and say, I can tell. No, he says, can I come back later? You know, whenever's good for you. And I'll tell you the interpretation in the dream. And the king, who 
still wants to get what he wants, which is some answer to this, figures why not. Now we do know from chapter 1 that he had already met Daniel, and it says in verse 19, none of them was found like him, the king spoke with them, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king acquired of him, they were way better, 10 times better. So Daniel goes in, maybe jogs the king's memory, oh, I actually liked this guy. Out of the hundreds of these clowns, you know, Daniel stands out. It's not hard to against the backdrop of what other, these other guys were doing. Oh, king, live forever. Daniel comes in with courageous conviction, though humbly, and requests, can we meet later on and I'll show you the interpretation to the king. And he gets it. Let's just stop here and maybe take something away for our own good. Learning from a contrast, if you will. And the contrast that kind of jumped off the page to me was between the anger and fury in verse 12 and the prudence and discretion in verse 14. Let's just think about that in our own lives for a moment. When has anger ever gotten you anywhere? But when you have gotten angry, lost self-control, what does it cost you? Especially relationally. I mean, I know there's the, you hit your thumb, you know, and then you throw the hammer and it dents the thing. And that, that costs you something you can buy. But when you've flown off the handle relationally, what does that cost you? How has that set you back? And look at the contrast between these two men. The man with all the power to do whatever he wants, angry and furious, and Daniel with very little power, but influence, because he's wise and he uses prudence and discretion. Uh, if you turn to Proverbs 16, you get a, basically a case study in this. It's kind of fascinating if you want to turn there in your own, chap, in your own Bible to chapter 16 of Proverbs. And just kind of, I'll read these few verses in a row if you just want to listen to them or follow along. And it's almost like we see the two characters next to each other in this interchange in Proverbs, a book dedicated to wisdom. Verse 13. Righteous lips are the delight of a king. And he loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death. But a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face, there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. How much better to get wisdom than gold, to get understanding to be chosen rather than silver. The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Now think about the contrast between the king with all the gold and all the silver but who really had what was valuable in that crisis moment? It was the man with wisdom, not the man with power. It was the man with prudence and discretion, not the man that just at, the, at a word of his mouth could say, I'm wiping out all these top people. Proverbs 14, 29, in the same verse, contrasts this when it says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Because we, wanna, we don't want to just put this in the category, that was good for, you know, a, a steward before a king. This is good for all of us in any relationships in life. 
to really ask the question of ourselves: What does anger cost me? And maybe to ask the harder question, what's underneath it? Because we all struggle with it. We all lose our cool. You know, we use nice euphemisms like lose our cool to not say the real issue. I got angry. I lost control. Even with the people we love the most, especially with them. Why do we do it? Well, what can we learn from Nebuchadnezzar by way of caution? What was his real issue that was bugging him? He was the king, and he thought he was in control, but come to find out he's really not, is he? Our problem is the same. Our problem when we want control is that we want to be God. So what's under our anger is a problem with God's sovereignty. You want to be in control, but you're not. And your own sense of sovereignty sets up the powder keg in your heart and all it needs is a spark. And then boom, my little kingdom. I don't get what I want. And so I'm angry. And some of us just need that reminder from Nebuchadnezzar's life. We're not God and not in control. And we can repent of the mirage of control that we want to have because it's not ours to have. Now, on the other side of it, the commendation is the prudence and discretion of Daniel. Daniel trusted his sovereignty. Daniel didn't trust that he was in control of everything. You know, Daniel could have handled the situation a lot differently, all things considered. He's heard the edict of the king, the decree of the king. He's just experienced God's favor and success. He could have let that pride go to his head and said, no, wait, you know, I'm here for a moment such as this. Esther tells me so, you know. Thanks for the laugh. But really, he could have had some cockamamie idea that God has put him in this time for this moment and he goes in and demands his rights and off with his head. He didn't do it. He didn't read the tea leaves of his own success in that moment and let it go into the king's presence demanding. He went in requesting self-control because he knew who was in charge. He knew who was sovereign and it wasn't him. And so he could trust it to God. He didn't know the outcome of walking into the court of the king. But he knew who was the true king. We accept the reality of God's reign over our life. And maybe that will help us with our anger. I remember a couple years back. It was some some interaction um, when I was back in Los Angeles. And uh, one of my uh, mentors that I went to work for, John MacArthur, he was some interview, and he's done a lot of those. He's been in ministry 50-plus years. But it was one exchange that was pretty unique. His wife was with him, and they've been married 50-plus years. And um, they asked her a question. Over the course of your decades of marriage to John and all that's gone on, what do you admire most about him? And, of course, everybody thinks she's going to say, you know, his stand for the truth and all, which she does. But her answer was telling. She goes, what I admire most about him, I've never seen him angry. There could be a lot that could get that guy fired up, I'm sure, when you have that opportunity to have that influence in ministry across the world. She goes, I've never seen him angry. So the interviewer turns to him. Why is that so? He says, well, early on, 
I figured if God is sovereign, why, do I, why would I be angry? If I really believe that God's in control, why should I be angry? And what undergirds that is a principle I heard him say many a times in many a places. When you are in a crisis, your theology carries you. It does. What you really believe about God is what gets you through it, not what you believe about yourself. What you believe about God in a situation, in a crisis just like this, will show itself. And if you really believe he is sovereign and he reigns and he's in control, that theology carries you. It's the anchor. So the ship's getting blown around in the waves, but the anchor's there. And the anchor's in God's sovereignty. Not yours. Not mine. I hope that contrast between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar is helpful on a practical level as we look at these two horizons. But let's see actually in the story how this um, faith of Daniel's carries itself out. So he's got the appointed time. Um, (laughs) That's kind of the chuckle in the white space. Okay, now he's got to actually show up with the right information. So verse 17, Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. He goes to his buddies and he told them, verse 18, seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. That's his plan. I mean, his life. And dozens of other lives are dependent upon this moment. Here's his plan. It's not to say, guys, crack open the books. Remember, we all graduated head of the class. We've got to get into the books and figure out what to tell the king when he doesn't tell you what his dream was about. Surely it's buried somewhere in the annals of Babylonian dream mysticism. Get the books, guys. Let's hit the libraries all nighter. I'll get the coffee going. Might have been what I would have been tempted to do. Take it into my own hands. What does he do? He puts it in God's hands. And he says, guys, let's pray. And in an economy of words, Daniel does not record any of what they prayed about. There's no method here, right? Because if there was, the prayer of Jabez would now have a follow-up book, the prayer of Daniel, and it would be how to pray in a time of crisis for a tyrant king and these four steps to this prayer will get you to get the bad guy out of office. Just like that, it works. It doesn't work that way. He knew to pray. And pray particularly for what? Mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery. So the, 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 the request is God be merciful To help me with this mystery of this dream and interpretation. But here's the motive. Don't miss it. So that we would not perish and the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now let that one mess with you a little bit. Wouldn't it be more appropriate to just pray that he and his buddies survive? And off with the limbs of the other guys. Because you know in these stories they're the bad guys. And we got to get rid of them right? That's how it works. Why does he want the welfare of the wise men of Babylon? Well, he's a a man of conviction. Would it be unjust for these men to die for an impossible task from the king? It would. 
Not only that, go to one of our favorite chapters in the Bible, Jeremiah 29. Now I know we all know verse 11, because we actually just sang it. You know, your plans are still to prosper. You know, that comes in the context, and it's a great read later on. Uh, Simultaneously, Jeremiah's sending letters. It says that in verse 1, to the surviving elders of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar took into exile. Isn't that kind of cool? You're reading here in Daniel of the real, and then over here, Jeremiah's saying, hey, I've got some information for y'all. While you are in Babylon, here's what you're to do. Verse 6. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Wow. God's saying, instead of walking around moping in Babylon all those years, you're here by God's sovereign hand. Be fruitful and multiply. Is it just about them? No, there's something bigger going on here. Verse 7 of Jeremiah 29. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And if that's not enough to connect to our text today, pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in it, its welfare, you will find yours. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Talk about a God whose ways are higher than our ways. I'm sending you into exile to the place of the people trying to wipe you off the planet. And if they keep you around, it's for their own purposes. And I want you to prosper there. And I want you to flourish. But I want the people around you, those pagan Chaldeans, to be better off because you were there. Strangers in a foreign land. No, 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 no. I want to rewrite that. We should isolate and seek the welfare of the Israelites and pray that Babylon burns. Right? No. Seek the welfare of that city. Let those people see God prospering you in a foreign land and pray for them. So back to Daniel, what's he doing in this moment? He was praying that not only he and his companions might not be destroyed, but the rest of the wise men there. And he would have no reason to make that a request other than he knew God's ways were higher than his ways. Verse 19, we get the results. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belongs wisdom and might. So we don't get the method of prayer, but we get the details of the praise. More important for Daniel to show to people decades later and centuries later is that God answered the prayer. He revealed it. The God who reveals, because he's the God of all wisdom and might, but that Daniel more so wanted to record how good God is, who he is and what he's like. And in 20 to 23, you get really the, the heart of this chapter, because this chapter is about the God who reveals, because he's the God who reigns. It's not about all the details of the statue that we will get to next week. Cliffhanger, come back. What we see this week is what Daniel wants us to see. Who is like this God? 
I mean, he still doesn't know the outcome of his own demise. And yet, what does he praise? He has a few aspects of um, God's higher power, the highest power, revealing this mystery that he's caught up in wonder and praise. Verse 21, what does God do? First, here's why we praise God who reigns. He changes times and seasons. What's he saying there? We're not even going to talk about the people yet. God changes times and seasons. What's that mean? He's got the big picture and he's got the running clock. The times is, is all history is his. But the seasons, it's right now. This moment, he changes this time. So when you get caught in the cycle of thinking like, oh, I know exactly what tomorrow is going to bring. And uh, because of this situation, the next few months or years. No, you don't. Because God's not just in charge of the big picture from cover to cover. He's got your next millisecond in his hand. And every second after that. And you don't know if he's going to change something there. Because he's your God and you're not. So first he gives that reason to praise God. Then he says he removes kings and sets up kings. And, he, and Daniel doesn't get the peek ahead and see how long Nebuchadnezzar is going to be in an angry fit, does he? Or who's going to come after him? He just reveals this basic truth. God's over the times and seasons and God's over the kings and the ones who he removes and the ones he sets up. And if that's not a great point of application today... God reigns over transitions in peaceful monarchies. And God reigns over the coups that end in pure anarchy. And every election in between. And he reigns over the voters. And he reigns over the vote counters. Crooked or straight. Period. And the vote wasn't in on Daniel's life, and yet he's still praising God. What more does he do? He now, in, in this is the these words that keep coming. He gives wisdom to the wise. He gives knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. How could God do all that? Because He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. He's the source of all truth. He's the source of all knowledge. He knows it all. And whatever's mystery to us, whatever seems dark to us, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is like every human that's ever lived on planet Earth apart from the wisdom of God, stumbling around in the dark, trying to find the light switch on the wall. And until God flips the switch by his work of regeneration to give you a new heart and thereby new eyes to see in the new birth by the Spirit of God, you're going to be in the dark no matter how much you try to fight it otherwise. He's the one that knows what's in the darkness. So then Daniel reaches back to say, to you, God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you've given me wisdom and might. Notice the given language back from chapter one coming around. You've given me wisdom and might. You've made known to me what we asked. You've made known to us the king's matter. Amen. It doesn't say, and I'm gonna survive this thing. Just says, you've made the matter known. So I'm going to walk into the king's place tomorrow, come what may. Verse 24, Daniel goes in to Arioch, the henchman, 
whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and says, hey, don't do it. Just give, the king said I could come. Bring me in before him, and I'll show the king the interpretation. So verse 25, the action picks up. Arioch brings in Daniel before the king in haste. And then what a wonderful line that Daniel remembers. I have found among the exiles from Judah. It was Daniel that sought him out, by the way. I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Daniel doesn't care to take credit because he's the one who just said, God, you gave me the wisdom and the might. You've made it known to me. And he also knows that God is the one that gave him favor with the king to even give him a hearing. So why would he be patting himself on the back like this guy is? The king declares to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? He cuts right to the chase. And Daniel answers and says, well, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king's asked. So no, it's not about me as what he said. But, and here's a wonderful line, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. There's the answer to the question that's been plaguing Nebuchadnezzar. Is there a God who can reveal it? Because the enchanters back in verse 11 said, there is nobody that can show this answer to the king except gods, but they don't live down here. And Daniel says, you're right, they don't live down here, but I know the one who lives up there. You know, how about these guys? They could search the heavens for an answer but never find it because they don't know the God of heaven. And nothing is different for us in here today. If you're not in Christ today, if he's not given you new eyes to see, you can search the heavens. You can search the books. You can go to universities. You can do whatever you want to find wisdom, but if you don't find God, you won't have it. And he gives it to you in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 says Christ is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that we don't understand anything apart from the Spirit of God's revelation to us. Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 2. Now we have received not the spirit of the world that's looking under all all the, the, the ways in which we can try to get ahead in this life and figure out wisdom under the sun. It says, no, we have wisdom from the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. That's the explanation for it all. You get anything out of today, it's because God has opened your eyes to the truth. And that relieves me because I'm a failure in the sense to, to give the perfect explanation of the word of God. That task is too great for any preacher. I don't care how good he is. My trust is in the Spirit's work in your life. Whatever it is I gave you today isn't going to exceed what God can give you. So that's why after a sermon you ask him, Help me take it and know it and apply it and live it. And if you aren't in Jesus today, God, be merciful to me. That same prayer these guys had. Show me your son. Help my unbelief. Help me see my sin. Help me see the Savior. You can do that today. Daniel just goes on to tell the king, all of this is from God. To me, it's a mystery, verse 30, but he revealed it. Not because of my wisdom more than any other living person, but in order that the interpretation would be known to you, the king. 
And next week, we get to find out what that is. So, apologies to you who thought we were going to get to point three. We'll do that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for the fact that it is your spirit who inspired the word that Daniel wrote thousands of years ago and that you have kept it. And here it is in front of us and you, spirit, are illuminating it to us. What a gift. And you will motivate us from within to work this out. And for all that, we bring you praise God. Like Daniel did, you give it all. You make it known. You bring it to life. And you change us from within. So we are most thankful to you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.